0: I am not complaining about the weather at all. I'm sure the farmers are not complaining about the weather. Uh, Jake, not complaining, right? No. I was going to tell you, after, after the rain we had, like last Saturday night, did you guys see the corn? You could watch the corn grow. Right? It just like shot up. Um, something that I've been thinking about for, for several weeks now is I've seen a slide up there, and I just feel Holy Spirit led to bring it to your... This is going to take us back a little bit. I was just telling Steve, uh, the slide up there with VBS, be honest now, those of you who may have a little age on you, and I'm not looking at anybody specifically, when you read, when you read the little spin the spinner... What came to mind? Anything? No, nothing? Twister? No? Spin the... Nobody. Yes? Am I the only one? Okay, thank... Ben! Yeah, spin the spinner. Sk- spin the spinner. Da, 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 twister ties you up in a knot. Yeah, twist... No. Nothing. Am I... Okay. <laughs> All right. Well... Follow me. Don't follow me. Follow me, the story of discipleship. So um, we're going to talk about uh, John today, the disciple, later the Apostle John. I've I've titled this uh, John the Truth in Love Disciple. The Truth in Love Disciple. Hopefully that becomes clear as we walk through it. Um, About 15 years ago now, very close to it. I had a, uh, what I can best describe as a truth in love, it was necessary, a truth in love conversation with my then 19-year-old son, Braxton. Uh, Braxton had graduated from high school. He was still living at at, at home with us. And he had tried the community college scene for a semester, fall after, after graduating from high school. But dad, that's, That's not for me. I'm like, cool, cool. So uh, a job, right? And so he was working at Subway. He was working at Subway for a while, uh, but um, he left that job, quit that job. Dad, it's not for me. You see a pattern emerging here. And uh, I said, okay, so um, you're still living at home. And that's gonna mean, Braxton, that you know, you're gonna, there's, there's, there's a responsibility here, and that's gonna mean at least, among other things, work. You're gonna have to find a job. So uh, gave him a deadline, plenty of time, I assure you, gave Braxton a deadline to find another job, to, to, to find work. And uh, it wasn't as if I set the deadline and didn't say anything else about it, right? It's Braxton. Just want to remind you, date's coming up. Braxton, just want to remind you. Braxton, just want to remind you. You know, and the deadline came and passed, and I had to have a uh, what uh, hurt my heart, but a very necessary conversation with my son. And I'll never forget it. It was at the front door of our house. And uh, I had the conversation with I said, Braxton, now, I'm going to share this with you. And you may, you, you did not say that. Yes, I did. And l- let me, so let me finish the story. I said, Braxton, you have 48 hours to pack and move out. And I'll never forget his tears, like he just broke down, 19-year-old young man, just broke down and cried, And if you care at all about people, right? And and a truth in love conversation is needed, like that messes with you, right? Like it hurts your heart to, to have those kinds of conversations, but you know it and I know it. They are so necessary. Interestingly enough, here's kind of the rest of the story interestingly enough Braxton found a job the next day (laughs) and he has not been without a job since in fact the positions he's held um, uh, he has a strong work ethic high integrity and his bosses appreciate him praise him laud him all that kind of good stuff but even 14 almost 15 years later I wonder would that be the case if I did not have that truth-in-love conversation with my son. I wasn't looking forward to the conversation, but I knew it was a necessary conversation. The disciple later, the apostle John, had a little bit to learn about this concept of truth-in-love. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to lean... ...toward one side or the other. Some of us uh, tend to lean toward the truth side. Some of us tend to lean toward the uh, love side. I want to put this in place on the front end. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. They are certainly not mutually exclusive in God's economy. In God's way of doing things they actually dovetail together quite nicely and as we walk through a couple of passages today I hope that comes through loud and clear that truth and love are not in opposition to each other those of you who are parents you get this right those of you who are a little older as sons and daughters you understand that, right? As adults, as adult sons and daughters, most of us can probably look back over our childhood and think of a time or two or 70 where somebody, maybe a parent, maybe a teacher, maybe, maybe somebody we looked up to in our life had, a, had to have a truth in love conversation with us. We may not have wanted it at the time, We may not have desired it at the time. We may not have liked it at the time. But I'll bet, if you'll search your heart of hearts, nine times out of ten, you know what? Not only did I need that conversation, but today, I'm thankful for it. So... We're in, uh, in, in the final, uh, the initial grouping of the four disciples, right? Four disciples, there's several groupings uh, in, the, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts of the listings of the disciples. Today we close out that first grouping of two brothers, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Today is John, going to focus on John much of what I said and I mentioned this last week much of what I said about James John's brother could also be said about John himself for example along with Peter James and John were part of Jesus' inner circle don't you find it interesting I hang around 16, 17 and 18 year olds for nine months of the year and I, I I hear this term click like see that click over there Mr. Warner see that click over there Mr. Warner see that click over so really depends on how you define the term click doesn't it if you define click as a group of friends is there anything wrong with a group of friends hanging out together no a click might be defined as a group of friends hanging out to the exclusion of others then i think in an unhealthy way you have a have a click going to talk about that a little bit later the family of james and john as i mentioned last week seem to have been somehow some way prominent Um, family of influence. Of course, Jesus, Jesus himself gave James and John the nickname Boanerges, or Sons of Thunder, which spoke at least in part to their passion, to their zealousness. The scene we looked at in Luke 9 last week, where James and John, trying to take a page out of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, right? North to south, heading, set his face. He's going. Nothing's going to stop him. Needs to pass through Samaria, send some people ahead to a Samaritan town. And the Samaritan said, nope, no way, not happening. Go another route. James and John get wind of this. And in the spirit of Elijah, or so they thought, Lord, should we smoke them? Should we call fire down from heaven and let them have it? Talked about that last week. John was part of that. Uh, Also last week in Matthew 20, James, John, and their mother, Salome, uh, where she pleads, uh, so Jesus, this kingdom thing, it sure would be nice if John could be on one side and James could be on the other side. So that whole conversation. And additionally and finally, uh, John was actually, we learn in John's gospel, John was actually uh, a follower of John the Baptist before he became a follower of Jesus. So, James and John together, here are some unique characteristics about John himself. It's generally agreed that the Apostle John penned five books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to look at 2nd John today as well as the book of Revelation. And let me insert this editorial comment because it's pet peeve number 73 for me. It is the book of Revelation, not Revelations. I feel better. I I just feel better having said that. So, in those five books... Interestingly, in terms of just sheer volume of words, John sits third in the New Testament just in terms of sheer volume of words. Uh, Luke penned the most. So John sits at 20, uh, 20%, Luke at 27%, and the Apostle Paul at 23%. So you put those three guys together and you have basically seven out of every ten words In the New Testament so so John's influence in the New Testament is significant in John's letters all five of them three key words keep coming up over and over and over and over and over again the word love the word truth and the word witness love truth and witness love, John uses this word more than 80 times in his writings. In fact, no other, including Paul, no other New Testament writer wrote as much on the, uh, on the content, on the subject of love, as did John. Second word, truth. John uses the word some 45 times in his writings, and I find this interesting. Of all the New Testament writers John is, John is the most, anybody here, like, when you think about life, not a lot of gray areas for you. It's pretty black and white. Anybody, can I see your hands? It's like, that's you, pretty black and white, because that tends to be me. I'm pretty black and white. You would get along pretty well with John, because John was a pretty black and white This is it. This is the way it works. Uh, He he dealt in absolutes. He dealt in certainties. Little room for gray. Third word, witness. John uses the word witness some 70 times in his writings. And interestingly enough, almost every time he uses the word witness, it's in conjunction with the word truth. So all three of those words just shout out something to us about John, post-Pentecost, mature John, regarding who he was, how he saw life, how he followed Jesus, truth, love, and witness. It's also widely held that John lived longer than any of the apostles with some, some pretty credible sources saying that John died uh, maybe as late as AD 103 in the city of Ephesus, widely held that he uh, pastored the church in Ephesus. So, so John, significantly influential in the early church. Going to look at two passages today. I want to ask you to turn, get to somehow, some way to the first passage, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9. And then, after I walk through just a few verses there, we're going to head to Second John. So, Mark chapter nine, verses. Uh, we're going to start at verse thirty-eight. And we're going to seek to learn from John's life uh, in the context of the larger biblical narrative. So, Mark chapter nine, starting at verse thirty-eight. This passage we're going to read comes off the heels in Mark's gospel of Jesus' transfiguration if you're not familiar with what that was Jesus took his inner circle Peter, James, and John up to a mountain and he glowed like he was transfigured before them like his heavenly appearance if we could put it that way they saw as John says in the first chapter of John's gospel they saw his glory okay just three, the privilege, the inner circle, right? Then a little bit after that, after, after the Transfiguration, an argument arises among the boys, among the disciples, like, who's the greatest in the kingdom? So they had been with Jesus at this point, Mark chapter nine, two, two and a half years ish. So we might say, that they have been with Jesus long enough to know better. But did they know better? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we are not like the disciples? Aren't you glad that when we learn something from Jesus the first time, he never has to repeat himself? We never have to relearn that lesson. Aren't we special? Okay. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw... Now, I'm singling out John here, but John is, because he's the one speaking, but he's kind of speaking on behalf of the other 11, but we're going to single out John here. John said to him, Teacher, we saw... Man, this is tribalism at its best. If you're familiar with the term, I'm going to talk a little about tribalism. Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name... And we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us, because he wasn't with us, because he wasn't part of our tribe. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us such important words from Jesus in our day and age. John, who definitely at this point in his life leaned strongly on the side of truth, said, "Lord, um, they're not. They're not part of us. They're not with us. Like they're not part of our tribe. So, Lord, should I? We should." Should we not associate with them? Should we try and stop them? Jesus' words are instructed. Notice he says, "Forever is not against us is for us. Jesus is not anti-tribe per se, right? But I think Jesus is anti a certain kind of tribalism. This is intolerant tribalism at its finest. Tribalism may be defined as behavior and attitudes that stem from one's loyalty to one's social grouping if you'll think about it you don't just have you don't just you don't just have in your life a singular social circle you have many if you in any given week if you think about it we actually seamlessly move from tribe to tribe to tribe we have a a family tribe many of us have a church tribe we have a friend group tribe we have a sports team tribe and the list goes on and on and on so god is not anti-tribal per se but he is anti a certain kind of tribalism a tribalism that is very intolerant that i referred to earlier kind of the mantra us for and no more nothing wrong with having friend groups obviously But when our friend groups become exclusive, then that becomes an issue. Forming identity in the context of social... Hear this well. Forming identity in the context of social relationships is part of what it means to be human. There is a sense that we might could say... That to be human is to tribe. To be human is to tribe. Or you might be familiar with a more familiar form of tribalism. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries Sure would help a lot Wouldn't you like to get away? If you know it, sing it. Sometimes you want to go Where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came He's bringing back any memories. You want to be Everybody knows your name. You want to go where people know. People are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. Cheers was performed before a live studio audience. There is something about that that resonates with us. Isn't there? Check out the lyrics to the chorus. Sometimes you want to go, right? Like, where you're wanted. Where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see, like, I'm not in this alone. Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. I think... That is, that right there is inherent in what it means to be human. We all seek out tribes. We all seek out meaning and purpose in our social interactions. As I said earlier, I think to be human is to tribe. There's an an innate human desire to finding our tribe, to, if I could put it this way, to tribing, to finding our place where everybody knows our name. Whether it's finding your crew in middle school, pledging a fraternity or sorority in college, joining a CrossFit gym, political affiliation, sports teams, religious denominations, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Tribalism speaks to a fundamental human longing, a fundamental us, a fundamental we, a place where I can belong, a place that's bigger than me. We long, if I could put it this way, we all. And if you'll check your heart, you know this is true. We all long to belong. We do. We long to belong. We long to be a part of something where everybody knows our name. Biblically, and this is why, this is why something like the song makes sense on one level... Biblically, this makes sense, for such a longing is reflective of the triune God in whose image we are made and in whose image we bear. A God who exists in community. A God who is himself a communal God. This this need to belong is deeply woven into the very fabric of who we are, into the very fabric of what it means to be human. Tribalism certainly has positive as well as negative social effects. A positive effect might be uh, uh, tribalism at its best can help foster a sense of identity, a sense of trust, a sense of belonging. However, in a negative slant, if we're not careful, we know that tribalism can foster a what? An us versus them mentality. To a a point where it's very benign, very minimal. Think sports teams, think your favorite baseball team or football team, think your favorite sports team. And, and how you go about rooting for them, cheering for them, and think about, for me, Cubs and socks, man. Right? Cubs and socks. That's, that's a pretty benign example of tribalism. How about this one? The Third Reich and Jews. Right? Sense of tribalism. And us versus them. And if you'll think about it, if we're not careful, I'm telling you, this is so deeply woven into us, we do it without thinking. If we're not careful, this us versus them mentality, it walks through the day with us. And we begin to objectify people we begin to pit ourselves against others who are not like us. Not a good thing. Not healthy. I find myself, I have to check myself from time, Bill, what are you doing, man? That's a fellow image bearer. You may not agree with everything they say or everything they do, but Where's the empathy? Where's the sympathy? Where's the compassion? We will go to great lengths to see that this deep-seated need to belong is met. In fact, I suggest to you that we cannot not see that this need is met to fit in, to tribe, to reflect the community within the triune God whose image we bear is met. Unfortunately, we can, not always, but sometimes we do. We can seek to have that need met in unhealthy ways. In other words, that sense of identity and trust could be misplaced, unhealthily misplaced. For example, We just came out of the month of June, a month that has, in recent years, relatively recently, been designated Pride Month in recognition and celebration of the LGBTQ community. Listen well. The worldview behind Pride Month depends on a certain vision, a certain worldview, if you will, of what it means to be human. In part, it's about a vision of belonging. At its core, it is about a vision of meeting the deep-seated, God-given need to belong. But with a certain take, a certain understanding of what the words truth and love mean a certain understanding, a certain perspective of what the words truth and love mean. But I think the sense of identity and trust, while an attempt at meeting a legitimate need, the need to belong, to reflect the community within, in the triune God whose image we bear, ultimately fails to fulfill that need in a legitimate, meaningful way since it's not according to God's created order and it hurts my heart I think the gospel tells a better truth in love story in fact I maintain you want to talk about inclusivity versus exclusivity I maintain that Jesus hear this that Jesus was the most inclusivist, exclusivist who ever lived. Let me say that again. I maintain that Jesus was the most inclusive, exclusivist who ever lived, whoever walked the earth. In John's gospel, John quotes the following two passages. They happen quite a distance apart. But he quotes the following two passages from Jesus' very lips. John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way. Do you hear that? For God loved the world in a certain way. What way was that, Jesus? He gave. He gave His one and only Son so that, here's the inclusivity, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life from the lips of Jesus a little bit later in Jesus life John chapter 14 verse 6 Jesus told him speaking to Thomas Thomas or Philip I am the way the truth and the life nobody but nobody but nobody comes to the father except through me there's the exclusive part What a perfect, perfect merging of love and truth. My son Braxton needed to hear a merging of love and truth, ultimately for his benefit, and ultimately it benefited him. Not only... Do we need to hear truth in love ourselves? We also need to be dispensers of truth in love. Hello, the world is perishing around us for want of Christians who will have the courage to speak the truth in love. Need them both. The end of of my sermon, just a little bit, I'm trying to help you understand what truth without love looks like and what love without truth looks like. We need them both. Truth in the context of love. John did not have it there. Later he would. John displayed a very intolerant tribalism. Later he is going to model Jesus' life by being an inclusive exclusivist interestingly enough don't tell me do not tell me that God doesn't have a sense of humor in fact side note one of the things like when I meet Jesus wouldn't you like to kids little kids like to hang around Jesus right when he walked the earth true what? kids don't like to hang around a boar, do they What was it about, I want to hear Jesus laugh? Right? What does Jesus laugh sound like? So don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Because John, the intolerant truth without love tribalist, in what is the last biblical report of him in action, in Acts chapter 8, outside of his letters, he and Peter, wait, wait for it, are you ready for this? He and Peter are sent, they're commissioned to Samaria. Unbelievable. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria. Think about it. If you've been here for a while... Jesus, on the front end of his ministry, had to travel through uh, Samaria with the boys. On the back end of his ministry, talked about it last week, had to travel through Samaria. This This is not a win for the boys. This is not, traveling through Samaria was not a win for the disciples. And here we are. John, the mature and maturing apostle, is sent to Samaria. Guess who lives in Samaria? Samaria. Yeah. Had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they I wonder what was running through John's mind. Was he replaying the two episodes in Samaria? Was he was he was he pulling a dough? What was I thinking back then? After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John touched the Samaritans. Let that sink in. They touched the Samaritans, laid their hands on them, and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. That's John growing in truth and love. Let's look at John a little farther down the road, the more mature apostle John in 2nd John. 2nd John near the end of the Bible just before the book of Revelations. Good. Throughout his letter, John repeatedly repeatedly couples the concepts the practices of truth and love remember biblically in God's economy they are not mutually exclusive they mesh together really 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 well verses 1 through 6 place an emphasis on love by reminding this elect lady many think it wasn't a lady per se although it could have been many think it may have been a house church Place an emphasis on love by reminding this elect lady and her children that the sum and sum, if you want to boil down what the law is all about, what the truth is all about, you can sum it up with the word love. God's law is about love. Verse 1, the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. John now gets it. He now sees how truth and love fit together. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Verse 2, because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So, his, his letter, in fact, all of his letters ooze with this combining, this contextual truth in love, as well as witnessing to the reality of this truth in love. Verse 4 I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, in keeping with the command we have received from the Father. So, now I ask you, dear lady not as if i were writing you a new command but one we have heard from the beginning of had from the beginning that we love one another where did john hear that the upper room jesus from his lips a new command i give you as i have loved you so now you love one another john the old man john that command is still ringing in his ears as if it was just yesterday it's still fresh this is love watch, how, watch what he does here verse 6 this is love that we walk according to his commands take the word commands out and put truth in this is love that we walk according to God's truth No dichotomy anymore for John. No intolerant tribalism anymore for John. This is love that we walk according to his commands. This is a command as you have heard it from the beginning that you walk in love. Interesting, first six verses, this emphasis on truth in love. Walking according to love based on Jesus' commands. Verses 7 through 11 a little twist a little turn place an emphasis on truth by urging this elect lady and her children to not compromise her love saints of god we need to hear this in our culture in our day of age day, day and age to not compromise her love by giving place to false teachers and their teachings, which do what? Undermine the truth. That's not loving. We live in an age, in a culture, with a certain take on the word acceptance. Acceptance, biblically, means you are a fellow image bearer. Even though you may be a stranger to me, you are a fellow image bearer and I am called to love the stranger. But unconditional love never biblically presupposes unconditional acceptance of any and all behavior. Those of you who are parents, is that how you you handle it? Or is that how you handle it with your children or grandchildren? Do whatever you want. I love you. Do whatever you want. Is that how it works? didn't work that way in in my household. Because I love you, this is what life looks like. In our culture, we have a strange idea of this concept of acceptance. To accept you means I cannot question any of your behaviors or practices. Feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of that. Those of you who are Christians, Did Jesus in love confront you in your stuff? Does he still in love confront you in your stuff? And aren't you thankful? I am. I may not like it, at least initially, but I'm thankful for the fruit that it produces. I'm thankful for the righteousness. Verse 7 Many deceivers have gone out into the world, they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves. John is speaking this from a heart of love. He is speaking this truth from a heart of love. Watch yourselves so that you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching, but goes beyond it, does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, hear this well, child of God. Do not receive them. We might say in our, do not receive them into your home. We might say in our day and age, be careful who you fellowship with. I am not saying totally withdraw from the world. You can't be salt and light and totally withdraw from the world. I am saying it is, be careful who you allow the most weight, the most influence in your life. Be salt and light. Rub shoulders with lost people. Absolutely. Biblical command. But don't buy into their teaching and do not greet him, for the one who greets him shares in his evil works. Tell you what, you can't get much more truth than what John just laid down there. But it was coming from a pastor's heart. It was coming from a place of love. Can can you do does that work? It does. That's how God works. We suffer from a misguided form of acceptance in our culture, a misguided vision of belonging, of what the words truth and love really mean. I want to close by, by putting a fascinating quote before you from Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller passed away a few months ago, a very influential pastor and author. I think he has a great take on this relationship of truth and love. Love without truth is sentimentality. It affirms, it it supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial of our flaws, about our flaws. Um, Confession, I am a flawed human being. I still wrestle with stuff. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. But I'm still in process. How about you? I have blind spots in my life. And I need you. And I'm depending on you to, at appropriate times, help me to see them. Fair? Is that not part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ? To be in koinonia, to be in fellowship, to be in friendship? That we give one another permission because we don't have it all together. That we give one another permission to speak truth in the context of love into our lives. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, and this is where too many Christians land. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. It cannot really be heard. If I could put it this way the message we convey to people is not just in words, it is also In tone. It is also in body language. When we feel the need to speak the truth to someone, what does our tone, what does our body language reveal about how we see this fellow image bearer? God saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. They fit together really, really well. They do in the gospel. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves, causing us or leading us to do what? To repent. The Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Oh, that we were Christians who could embody that. It hurt my son to hear the truth in the context of love from me. But it was what he needed. It's what he needed to hear. And me speaking the truth to Braxton some 14 years ago. Was in fact. An expression of my love to him. And an expression of my love for him.